Welcome to the second Sunday in Epiphany in our liturgical calendar. So since September, we've been using the narrative lectionary to follow the stories of God's interactions with his peoples from the earliest days. We recently celebrated the birth of Christ, and now, in this new year, we are looking at the ministry of Jesus through the eyes of the Apostle John. So let us pray. Lord, open our eyes to see you. Open our ears to hear you. Open our hearts to receive you. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we began with the wedding at Cana motif, thought to be the first miracle of Jesus' ministry. One thing we learned was that God is interested in the whole of our lives, even the celebrations. Then today, we suddenly get a little jarred as we find ourselves in this story that we've come to know as the cleansing of the temple. We associate this passage with the last weeks of Jesus' ministry. It's one of the incidents that probably spurred the Jewish authorities into taking action, the actions that led to his arrest and all the other events of the Easter season. Now, it's certain that Jesus would have made more than one trip up to Jerusalem. There were at least three Passovers during the years of his active ministry. But whether he cleansed the temple on more than one occasion, we don't really know. Um, Most commentators think probably not. But if it actually happened later, why did John put this story here at the beginning of his gospel? Well, John was getting on in age, and he'd had a long time to think and reflect and pray about all the events he had witnessed and heard about during Jesus' life. Over time, he could see more clearly how everything fit together. He was writing to people who would be second or third generation Christians who had probably not seen Christ in the flesh, but they were old enough that they would have had elders and parents and grandparents who had seen Jesus and who had witnessed him teach and preach and heal. They might have known his brothers and sisters. They'd seen him eat and sleep and drink and walk the countryside. They knew that Jesus was an actual person who had lived among them. In his writings, John recounts certain miracles which he calls signs, and interprets them to show that Jesus was not just a man, but God himself come to dwell among us. Thus the content, but not necessarily the order of the stories, was what was important to him. At the end of his gospel, he states that he has only written about some of the signs, but has written about them in order that his readers might believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, the Son of God. From the very beginning of his letter, John is on this theme. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The incarnation, that mysterious 
hard-to-grasp part of our faith that says that Jesus was fully God and fully man. In the words of the Nicene Creed, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. But we come to this passage at a distant time and place. It's almost 2,000 years since Jesus walked in bodily form on the earth. And as I was thinking about today's passage, I wondered if our challenge regarding this passage might be a little different. Many of us were introduced to Jesus with the birth stories, with angels, with mysterious strangers visiting shining stars. Um, Our relationship with Jesus now is a spiritual one. And I think for many of us, it may be just as hard to grasp the true personhood of Jesus as to understand his divinity. But that's one of the miracles of our scripture. They're timeless. And however you come to the incarnation in your thinking, um, the story has something to say to you. So there is an element in this story, as John is saying, This man who lived among us was truly God. But it also says, I believe, this God who dwells everywhere, including the human heart, was truly and actually a living, breathing, feeling person. The incarnation is probably one of the hardest tenets of our faith to get our heads around. Jesus, fully God, fully person, It's a mystery. We'll never fully understand it. But it's good exercise to ponder it periodically. It keeps you humble. For centuries, the great thinkers of the church gathered in huge conferences. I guess they didn't have Zoom. And hammered out the doctrine of the incarnation. There were those who believed Jesus was not God, but created by God and subordinate to him. Others thought that he only seemed to be a person, but was actually entirely spiritual. Some thought his two natures were both present, but were completely distinct in the one person. Later, another religion thought Jesus was a messenger of the one God, a great prophet, but not the greatest prophet. In more recent times, he has been thought to be a procreated son of God, the first, but not the only. Others believe that he is an agent of God, but not eternal. But we are not the heirs of an understanding of the incarnation that makes it easy to comprehend. Jesus was fully God and fully man. As the Chalcedon Council reported, two natures in one person, without confusion or change, separation or division. So that's kind of a lengthy introduction to my thoughts on this when I was reading this passage. So let's get to the story. So Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. He has been at Cana at the wedding and then has spent a couple of days with family and friends. Then he comes up to Jerusalem for the Passover and he goes to the temple 
and in the outer court, which was the court of the Gentiles, he sees this busy scene that Don talked to the children about. It is really busy. There is noise. There are smells. There is all kinds of activity going on. And when you look at it closely, there's some reason for this. Jews have come from all over the known world to celebrate the Passover in the holy city of Jerusalem. They all need a half shekel to pay the temple tax for each adult male, and some of them want to make animal sacrifices. So there's money changers and sellers of animals that are all ready and willing to help them out. Buy a goat, buy a pigeon, get your shekels here. All good? Apparently not. Widespread price inflation was going on. These pilgrims were being defrauded, and the merchants were making a lot of money out of the whole thing. Jesus sees what is going on and is infuriated. He takes some cords, makes them up into a whip, turns over the tables of the money changers, scattering the coins. Then to the dove sellers, he says, Take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. In other accounts of this story, he's recorded to say, This is supposed to be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. He's upset, and his actions leave little doubt about that. Then John tells us that the Jews, and he doesn't tell us specifically who these were, asked him about a sign. They said, what sign can you show us for doing this? Now, what they were really asking was, by what authority are you taking this action? Jesus' answer was a little perplexing. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Taking this literally, the Jews explained the temple had taken 46 years to construct. How was he going to raise it in three days? And in fact, the temple wasn't even finished. Temple construction went on for several more years after this. Interestingly, you can kind of picture the scene. The table's overturned, the animals are scattered, people don't quite know what to do. Um, I don't know if it got quieter. John doesn't tell us anything at all about what happened next. With the benefit of thought and, and reflection on activities that came later, he comments that Jesus is really talking about his body when he talks about the temple. Once Jesus was raised from the dead, this comment finally made sense to the disciples and his other followers. They could then say, this man that we saw turn out the money changers and animal sellers was truly God. After the resurrection, they understood and believed what Jesus had said. This passage, too, I think, shows a very human Jesus, a person with real emotions and passions. He acted in response to injustice. His anger was kindled against those who violated the laws and took advantage of other people. These fellow Jews were, uh, may have been foreigners, but they were pilgrims come to worship their God. Now, I've always had 
some trouble with the image of Christ as portrayed when I was in Sunday school of uh, blonde, blue-eyed, um, very timid-looking Jesus who was always happy and serene and kind. But there are glimpses of the real humanity of Jesus throughout the Gospels, but you have to look for them. Jesus hungry, Jesus tired, Jesus needing to get away from the crowds, Jesus enjoying the company of his friends and family, Jesus exasperated that the disciples couldn't stay awake and pray with him. And for me, this story, Jesus Enraged, illustrates his humanity so very vividly. So grapple a little with this idea of the Incarnation. Why is it so important that great councils were convened to make sure it was upheld? When so many religions and sects have found ways to make it more palatable, easier to understand, why do we continue to embrace this understanding of the Incarnation? Does it make any difference in 2022 in our fifth wave of COVID? Well, we know the Incarnation heralded the inbreaking of the kingdom of God amongst us. By his life, Jesus showed us how to be truly human, and by his death and resurrection, he has freed us from the grip of sin and death, and we have been welcomed into this kingdom. Jesus, who was truly God and truly man, has accomplished this for us. I believe, too, that because our God lived as a human and experienced what it was like to be human, when we are disgusted, angry, Jesus understands. When we are tired and discouraged, Jesus understands. When we wonder where God is and what he is doing, it's okay to express that to him in prayers of lament and call upon him to act. He will understand. Jesus saw poverty and sickness and evil and greed. He knows the challenges that we face and what lies in the human heart. He understands. So I invite you in the next few moments to take some time to draw near to him, and particularly to be aware of your body. Take a little scan of how you're feeling right now, kind of with your mental acuity. Just run your thoughts through different parts of your body and see where you need healing. Let him bring his healing grace to the parts of you that need it most. The Incarnation, in the words of Charles Wesley, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, Hail the incarnate deity, 
pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Blessings to you all as you continue the journey of faith.